0: They were putting in this teeny tiny shunt called a Blalock toxic shunt. It was my yeah. first time to be exposed to those terms. And they said, if he throws a blood clot in that shunt, he will die. We live three hours away. I said, do we need to move to San Antonio? Because at that point we would have done anything to have yeah.
1: him,
0: him a better chance to survive. The surgeon said, Anna, even if Alex was on the table in front of me, He said, if he threw a clot, I would not be able to open him up fast enough.
1: Oh, wow. So
0: that was really scary, Mary. For the first six months... When I saw him alive in the morning and at night, the last thing I did was go check on Alex and Joey. I would put my finger under his nose because he was breathing so quietly for, for two months. He would breathe so hard. Now that he had that bloodline toxic shunt, he was breathing so quietly that it scared me. I would put my finger there so I could feel the little bit of breath coming out of his nose. And I'd
1: be like, okay. And I would crawl (sighs) out of the room. Hello, my name is Mary and welcome to Not a Perfect Heart Discussions for the Heart. I'm a doctorally prepared nurse practitioner and co-founder of Not a Perfect Heart, a community for those affected by congenital heart disease, survivors, parents, siblings and more. I'm excited for today's show entitled Heart Mom Rider. We have a very special guest today, Anna Jaworski. She's a heart mom the host of Heart to Heart with Anna, and an author. Anna's son, Alexander, was diagnosed with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. He's had three open heart surgeries. At the time of this recording, in February 2021, he is 26 years old. Anna has also written and edited several books for the congenital heart defect community. Hi, Anna. Welcome to the show. How are you?
0: Hi, Mary. I'm so excited to be one of the first guests on your program. So thank you for letting me have that great honor.
1: Yeah, I'm so excited that you agreed to come on. I am just thrilled that you're here. You've done so many amazing things. First off, in the beginning, when your son was diagnosed with congenital heart disease, I wanted to talk about what kind of resources were available and how that's evolved over the years and how important that is. That is such a good question because when
0: Alexander was first diagnosed 26 years ago, first of all, we weren't given a diagnosis, we were just told something was wrong. And so there were no cell phones, there was no Google, no Facebook groups, we just knew something was wrong, but we really didn't know what was wrong. And when I pressed his doctor, she said she thought it was cystic fibrosis. Oh, yeah. And I really didn't think she was right. But I didn't have enough knowledge myself. And it I didn't have time to go to the library or anything because I was up in the fifth floor children's ward waiting to find out what the test results would be like. And so long story short, we discovered the next morning that no, it wasn't cystic fibrosis. Thank heavens for Vicki, a really, really excellent nurse who said that baby has a heart or a lung problem. A chest x-ray confirmed that he did indeed have a heart problem. And the next thing I knew, I was in an ambulance with Alex and a doctor and a nurse. I didn't know at that time, it was not common for doctors to go on the ambulance.
1: Oh, wow.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But the sad thing is that they told my husband, they did not expect Alex to make it The two and a half hours from the hospital that we were going from to the hospital we were going to in San Antonio. So we weren't given anything. I mean, I wasn't even given a diagnosis. I was told this baby has a heart problem so severe, we can't take care of it here. Wow, that's that's not much information. Yeah. So then, when I got to San Antonio, they still didn't know. They wanted to do a catheterization, and I didn't know they did catheterizations on babies. Yeah. So that was something new for me. And to be honest with you, I think I was in a state of disbelief and shock. I I just we had nobody else in our family who had had a problem like this, and. I just didn't know what to do. I just remember praying. I really remember praying a lot. And then, finally, over the course of the weekend, they they narrowed it down to two different heart defects, and Alex was put in an open bay way back 26 years ago. They yeah. Would have Nurses stationed in the center, and then all around the center, they had all these open bays. So whoever was in the center, they could look. They had their eyes on all of those babies, which was, you know, kind of a smart way to do it. It's not the way they do it anymore, but that's the way they did it back then. (laughs) Well, they didn't want the parents staying. You know, they just wanted us out of there so they could do their job, but there was no way I was leaving my baby. And so I kind of became the, the door mother of all those babies there, because most of the parents would come and go, but I, I stayed, my husband and I would take shifts and he was used to being a night nurse. So he took the night shift and then I took the day shift. And so there was a little baby next to Alex. Her name was Cheyenne. Oh. And the doctor came over and he said, Alex has one of two things. He either has what Cheyenne has or something much, much worse. So let's hope that it's what Cheyenne has.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: It was what was much, much worse. Wow. Yeah. And so that was my introduction to congenital heart disease. Whoa. And there were, there were no pamphlets. There were no books. In fact, the doctor told us to take Alex home to love him for what little time he had left.
1: Oh, wow. So they said, just take him home and let him die at home, basically.
0: Yeah. Wow. They, they were not positive at all in fact we were in a room with a bunch of doctors there was a cardiologist there was a cardiothoracic surgeon and there were and now there was at least one other doctor because there was a Dr. Green and there was a Dr. Brown I want to (laughs) say and then there was Dr. Park the cardiologist and then there was Dr. Calhoun a cardiothoracic surgeon and so I I guess I made the mistake of saying to Dr. Calhoun what would you do if it was your son and he said, oh, I, I would take him home to love him for what little time he has left. Whoa. And so then I turned to the cardiologist thinking, well, surely he won't say the same thing. And every person in that room said the same thing. And so after the fourth person said the same thing, I said, well, that's not an option. So what's next?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so then they said, well, there was an experimental procedure. And I said, great, we'll take it. Yeah. And so they didn't give me anything. In fact, I wish now that I would have had a cell phone like I do. (laughs) They didn't have cell phones like that back then. But Dr. Calhoun was used to working at a teaching hospital. And so there was a big blackboard in the room that they took us into to explain what was wrong. And so along this blackboard, here goes Dr. Calhoun drawing a picture of a normal heart And so I was somewhat familiar, I'd had anatomy and physiology classes in college, and then he draws a picture of my son's heart. And I honestly wanted to run out of the room and just snatch my baby to my heart because I couldn't believe he could be alive with so many things wrong.
1: He just, had,
0: he just had so many things wrong. And Dr. Calhoun said, the one thing Alex has going for him is that he has so many things wrong that some of the things are compensating for each other. Wow. And that was how he was able to stay alive for two months before we found out what was wrong with him.
1: Wow. He's lucky. He's,
0: he's so re- lucky. Yeah. I mean, Mary, it's, it's, it's truly a miracle story. Yeah. And there was nothing. So all I had was my memory of what Dr. Calhoun had drawn on the blackboard, because of course by the next day it was gone. Yeah, right. And I wished so much that he had at least drawn it on a piece of paper, so I would have had something. And all I remember you. was he kept saying over and over again, "Hypoplastic left heart syndrome." Hypoplastic left heart syndrome. <laughs> I, I, I had never heard means. of hypoplastic before. I was. I said to my husband, "What does?" Does that mean? because my husband's a nurse, and he said, like, I don't know. Neither one of us knew what it was. We just knew it was a mouthful. Yeah. You know, we went into the surgery. He was the first case, the first surgical case that Monday morning. And a lot of it was just prayers. You know, yeah. I just I had to believe that God kept Alex alive for two whole months for, for a, a reason.
1: reason. Yeah.
0: I had to believe that. And oh. It it was, it was really scary. And so after that, they told us, well, you know, if he survives this surgery, and they only gave him a 5% chance to survive, (sighs) because he was already in congestive heart failure, he already was not looking good. They said he was emaciated, not a word that a parent wants to hear about right. they're, they're calling him failure to thrive I mean all these horrible terms and so yeah five percent chance and I remember being so angry Mary my husband and I went to the elevator to go to the waiting room and I said how dare they say he has a five percent chance yeah like, uh, there aren't a hundred Alexanders having a surgery on the same day you know in the same hospital with the same surgeon I said he has a 50 50 chance Yeah, he's going to make it or he's not there's this 5% chance. that just really made me angry. They said, well, if he does survive this, which they weren't giving him good odds. They said he has a 25% chance to make it to the age of five. Lots of fives here. Yeah, (laughs)
1: their favorite number.
0: Yeah, they just made it sound like he could just die at any moment because they said they were putting in this teeny tiny shunt called a blalock toxic shunt. It was my first time to be exposed to those terms. And they said, if he throws a blood clot in that shunt, he will die. And so I said, well, we live three hours away from here because we lived way out in the country. The hospital that Alex was at when he was diagnosed was half an hour from our house. So it was really about a three-hour drive. I said, do we need to move to San Antonio? Because at that point we would have done anything to help him him a better chance to survive. And he said, no. The surgeon said, Anna, even if Alex was on the table in front of me, he said, if he threw a clot, I would not be able to open him up fast enough.
1: Oh, wow. So
0: that was really scary, Mary. That was really scary. So for the first... Six months, I mean, every single day I would say a prayer of thanks when I saw him alive in the morning and at night, the last thing I did was go check on Alex and Joey. Of course they were in the same room, but I would put my finger under his nose because he was breathing so quietly for two months. He would Whoa. breathe so hard. Now that he had that was like, Shun, he was breathing so quietly that it scared me. because yeah, I And so I would, I would put my finger there so I could Feel the little bit of breath coming out of his nose, and I'd be like, okay. And I would crawl (sighs) out of the room because I didn't want to wake him. (laughs) Oh, my God. I would crawl out of the room and go and say another prayer of thanks that I had another day with him. And I just worried because Alex shared a room with him. What if Joey found him?
1: Yeah, he
0: found him before I did. And, and something was wrong. I did it. I was really, really afraid of that. Really for about six months, every day was just about survival. Yeah. And making the most out of every day. If Joey was going to lose his little brother, I wanted him to have some happy memories. I just tried to make every single day count. Yeah. And he started getting bigger and bigger. And he got these pinchable cheeks and his personality started to come through. He wasn't falling asleep all the time. That's when I said to Frank, he's not going to be that statistic that they said, Alex is a fighter, you know? And so we need to make plans that he's going to survive. And Frank said, yeah, I think so too. (laughs) And so- it it became less of a, are we going to make it till tomorrow? And it became more of a, okay, so what's next? We knew that there was going to be this second surgery. Yeah. And so I said to Frank, I, I have to know more. I really feel like, what if there's a red flag and, and I'm too stupid to know about it and my baby dies because of my stupidity? yeah. So I asked the doctors for information because the first year, really, but especially right after surgery, you see the doctor a lot. A lot, and so I was asking for information. I said, "Well, there really isn't anything. I I just begged them." I, and nobody was helpful at all they were sympathetic but they weren't helpful at all so I said to Frank after Alex got pinchable cheeks and he seemed to be doing much better I said I need to go to the University of Texas at Austin Graduate Library because that's where I had gotten my master's and so I still had privileges there yeah I I need to go there and I need to find everything I can Frank kept Alex and Joey for a day so I could go to the library and Mary
1: There was like nothing.
0: No, there was stuff. Oh. There was stuff, but not for people like me, for doctors like Dr. Park and like Dr. Calhoun and Dr. Green. Everything was like Greek. I was looking at it. And then I think the worst part was that it was really dismal. But those, those statistics that they quoted me, that's where they got them was from this literature that I was looking at. And so then in the stacks, I found this book called the heart of a child. Oh. And that that looked like it was written for everyday people like for me, and it was written by a nurse and a doctor who I think were married. I think they had the same name. So I immediately opened it up and they had information about all different kinds of heart defects. It wasn't just hypoplastic left heart syndrome. And so I looked up hypoplastic left heart syndrome in the back of the book. And I went to every single page where that was listed. Every single page. Sorry. still gets to me. But every single page, it was a baby who died in infancy. Every single one. And I said, this is not really helpful. I needed something that would give me hope. Yeah. And none of the stuff that I was finding was very hopeful, but I stopped reading it because I was getting so emotional. And I said, I I just need to Xerox. I got one of those cards because once upon a time, (laughs) you had to have these little cards to put in a machine. And so I went and got, I don't know, $10 or $15 worth of credit on my little card. And I was just Xeroxing and Xeroxing and Xeroxing. And I came home and I said to Frank, it's Greek to me. You've got to help me. And since he was a nurse, he could borrow cardiology books from the hospital library. So he would bring Uh, home all these books and together we tried to decipher what they were saying. And that's when I discovered there was nothing for us parents. And if it was this hard for me, and I had a master's degree and I had a husband who was a nurse, yeah. How hard was it for everybody else, Mary?
1: Oh my gosh.
0: Before I had Alex, even before I had Joseph, And I only have two children, Joseph and Alex. It was a dream of mine to be a writer. I loved Laura Ingalls Wilder. I loved Louisa May Alcott. And I thought, I'm going to be the next Louisa May Alcott or, you know, children's writer. That was my dream. When I became a stay-at-home mom, I started sending out stories to magazines and all this kind of stuff and got rejection letter after rejection letter. I knew it wouldn't be easy, but maybe I'm not going to be a children's book writer. I I didn't know. But then when I started having children, I... Had less time. (laughs) Yeah, right. That dream kind of got put on the back burner for a while. When I came home from that first surgery with Alexander, my husband was an ICU nurse. And the two of us used to share whatever we were reading, we would share with one another. So, of course, there were all these nursing journals. Well, I'm not a nurse, but I can pick up and read an editorial or something like that. I had been looking at these nursing journals for three years. I said to my husband, I need to write a letter to the editor of your nursing journal. Do you think that's okay? And he said, well, sure. You know, if they don't want it, they won't publish it. And I said, okay. I wrote this letter to the editor. And in the letter, I said, I'm an older mom, you know, because I was 31 when I had Alex. And I never appreciated what my husband did until I was living in the ICU with my baby. I shared my experience. I wrote this letter to editor, a little teacher of the deaf, writing to this uh, ICU nursing magazine. Oh, I love that. I didn't even think about it. You know, I just, after it was gone, I was like, well, you know, either they'll, they'll like it or they won't and didn't hear anything and didn't hear anything. And nine months after Alex had his Norwood, he was ready to go in and have his second surgery. And at that time, we weren't sure if it was gonna be a bi-directional gland or a Fontan, which is basically the same thing, or a fontan, we weren't sure. They said that they would make the decision when they got in there and they opened up his chest. While we were there having his second open heart surgery, unbeknownst to me, because we didn't have cell phones back then, the editor of the magazine was desperately trying to get in touch with me.
1: No way.
0: So the very first thing that I got published was not a letter to the editor. They decided that they liked what I had written so much that they wanted to feature it as the end note in the journal. They had me completely rewrite it because now it was an endnote. Now it wasn't just a letter to the editor. Frank said to me, you're spending an awful lot of time working on this. And now mind you, Mary, we didn't have email back then like we do now.
1: So everything oh. was
0: done through a fax machine.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh. That probably took a very long time.
0: Well. Yeah, it was much more laborious than what it is nowadays. Wow. I came home from the hospital and we had, <laughs> I feel so old talking about these different machines. and stuff. <laughs> We had an old fashioned answering machine and the light was blinking and blinking and blinking. There were all these messages, please call me, please call me. So finally I, I called them and they said, well, we need this like yesterday. So I was working really oh, hard geez. and Frank said, for you to put this much effort into it, they need to pay you. And I said, yeah. No, no, I'm so honored that they'll even print this. I'm, I'm not going to ask to pay. And he said, Anna, do you want to be a writer? And I said, Yes. And he said, Well, then you got to get paid for it. You need to ask them. And so Mary, I can't even tell you, I want to <laughs> say 55 or $65. I don't remember. It wasn't That's a big something. But it was the first time I got paid as a writer. So that was my entree into writing and trying to provide some kind of knowledge. At that time, it wasn't for the parents. It was for the nurses. You know, I mean, it was for the parents in a roundabout way. But I ended up taking that mountain of paperwork that I had copied at the Perry Castaneda Library And all the notes, I had brought a notebook and I had taken laborious notes. And then Frank bringing home all these cardiology books. And here I am writing out what these words mean. What's a catheterization? (laughs) What's an echo? You know, echo short for echocardiogram and, you know, all these different words. I said, you know, Frank, if it's this hard for me, it's got to be harder for other people. So let's, I I think I need to write a book. Yeah. And he said, okay. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> my husband's very easy He's like, okay, whatever you want to do. <laughs> and so I told my dad, I said, dad, I really think this is something that we have to have because I knew when Alex was in the hospital, there were three other babies and it was a two-year-old and all Aww. four of them were diagnosed with HLHS. And I said, you know, in the heart of a child, every single baby died in infancy, but Joshua is alive. Wow. And he's two. So there's hope. People need to know about Joshua. That was my whole reason for doing it was because I knew that that book was wrong. I knew that not every single baby had to die in infancy. The only other book that I found, and it wasn't a book, it was a pamphlet at the pediatrician's office. There was a little tiny pamphlet, and I wish I still had it, that was from the American Heart Association. Mm -hmm. And it was just a little pamphlet that talked about congenital heart defects, and it talked about holes in the heart, and it talked about tetralogy of fallow or blue babies, and it talked about transposition of the great vessels. I'm going through and I'm like, okay, well, where's HLHS? <laughs> Finally, on the last page of the booklet, it said, and there are other complex congenital heart defects like left-sided heart problems, like hypoplastic left heart syndrome, and all those babies die in infancy. Oh, my God. <laughs> so the two things that I did find, both said that all those babies die in die. infancy. And I knew that was wrong. I, I wrote the book, took me quite a while to write it. it Took I guess, about a year or so. And I showed it to my dad. And I said, Dad, I think I'm done. I had a section on anatomy. I had a section on the surgeries, a section on the medications that were used, the common complications, all those red flags that I was worried about. Amazing. I had them all written down so that parents would know. And so in case I forgot because I was panicked, you know, I could look and say, oh, that, that rapid breathing, that's not good. I should call the cardiologist, you know, I'm not being an overprotective mother. I had all these chapters, and and so I handed it to my dad. It was still a fairly small book. I handed it to my dad, and then I went to bed that night. My parents lived in San Antonio, and that's where Alex had his surgeries.
1: Oh, so nice. I, I,
0: yeah, so I would go stay there. I did a lot of writing at my parents' house. The next morning when I woke up, on my computer was a little post-it note from my dad, and he said, you're not done yet. Oh, so I waited till he got home and Alex had his doctor's appointment. And when my dad got home, I said, what do you mean? I'm not done yet. Yeah. And he said, nobody's going to care what you wrote about in here until they know Alexander's story.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That and was I good. said,
0: I can't tell Alex's story. I'll just be crying. And he's like, it's a book. Nobody will know if you were crying or not. <laughs> and so... That night, after the boys went to bed, I sat down at my computer and I just cried out Alexander's story.
1: Oh, good.
0: And I put it in my dad's chair. I printed it out and put it in my dad's chair. And the next morning when I woke up, there was a little post-it note that said, now you're done.
1: Oh, that's amazing. Have you updated that book or you've kept it cuz that's probably 20
0: that right <laughs> 20 yeah 24 years old I updated it once or twice I guess I updated it twice and then no, I did it. And I desperately need to I really, really want to because when I wrote that book, Mary, there was no biventricular repair, right? There was, there are so many different procedures. Now there was no real hybrid surgery like there is now. So a lot of the things that have come along in the last 20 years, are just really amazing. And now just recently, I was reading an article. And they were kind of bemoaning the fact that hypoplastic left heart syndrome is still not where we want it to be as far as the success rate. But they said, whereas, you know, 25 years ago, only 25% of the children who survived the Norwood made it to age five, now 75% of the children who survived the Norwood make it to age five. The numbers have reversed. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, yeah. So I thought, well, that's good to know, but still so sad that there's that higher percentage of children who still don't make it. And I think that just yeah. points to how complex HLHS is and how we're really lucky to have our kids at all when they're born with something that's that complicated.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. There's still so much work that I think we need to do in the congenital heart defect world. It's not just a baby problem or a childhood disease. It's now becoming an adult disease. So I think there's just still so much that needs to be identified. And I think the work that you've done over the years has really helped for parents, heart warriors, grandparents, siblings, so many people, because there's still a lot of limited resources. So I think you're helping to fill that gap with books and Websites and your podcasts. There's so much more though. There's so much
0: more. And now look, (laughs) you are what I would have loved to have found, Mary, an adult with a complex ask some of the hard questions, not afraid to confront the fact that really our lives are different now and they're, they're never going to be the same. You have CHD congenital heart disease introduced into your life. And all of a sudden everything looks different.
1: Yeah, that is true. And
0: not necessarily in a bad way. In some ways, I feel like it's been a blessing because I don't take a single day for granted. Yes. Every I single agree. day I have with my, my children. Now I'm with Oma. So every single day <laughs> I get with my granddaughter. It's a huge blessing. And I wonder if I would have been a little bit more cavalier about those days But having something as serious as congenital heart disease in my world, I know that something could happen. And and the thing is that something could happen to any of our loved ones. Right now, none of us knows how many days that we have here on earth but I think we become kind of cavalier. We have such amazing healthcare in the United States that we take for granted. Of course, we're gonna grow old. Of course, we'll become grandparents. Of course, we may even become great grandparents. It's something that you just kind of take for granted that yeah everything's gonna be okay. But then when you have a baby born with a heart defect, all of a sudden your whole world is shaken to the core and you realize maybe not. I might yeah. outlive my child. And that feels like it's against the natural order of things.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. It does, from my perspective, at least having a congenital heart defect, it definitely makes you more aware of the fact that you could pass a little bit earlier than the normal lifespan. So you try to live life as best you can, which is a hard reality to kind of be aware of that and I think that also then translates to the fact that many of us both parents and heart warriors have more anxiety and PTSD because of the early trauma that we face with seeing our kids have to go through surgery and then the heart warriors ourselves we have to go through surgery often and just being a little bit quote-unquote different from our Peers is kind of hard to face too. Did you feel like you had anxiety from this? And if so, how did you kind of cope with that?
0: I can't imagine any mother having a child with a critical congenital heart defect like I did, not having anxiety. I mean, maybe there are some super moms out there. I was not one of them. (laughs) If they are, we'd love to talk to them. Yes, we'd love to talk. Please come on Heart to Heart with Anna or on the program. (laughs) Yeah, tell us your technique. I want to know your secret. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Now, uh, I still hear that doctor's voice in my head saying that Alex only had a 5% chance. I still hear them telling me, you know, voice after voice telling me, just let him go, just let him go. And, you know, those negative prognoses. I'm proud of Alex. I'm so proud of him that he was a fighter and that he defied the odds. But I think there, you can't go to sleep at night sometimes without hearing those voices and being afraid. Yeah. But I think what Probably hurt me mentally more than that was like I said. There were three other children there. There were four families all at, in the hospital at the same time, and so that was my first support group. I, I latched oh. onto those mothers and not the fathers so much, but the mothers. And yeah. we were from all over the state of Texas because at that time there weren't many hospitals that were treating babies with HLHS. In fact, I was told that that was the only hospital that was doing the Norwood in Texas, I became really close to Shelly and Patsy and Amy, that was my fledgling support group. And mind you, they told me that only one in four would make it to age five.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: And I was a math teacher. So I knew that you couldn't take statistics like that and apply it to a teeny tiny group of four. But Within the first 17 months after Alex had his surgery and after Christina had her surgery and Nicholas had his surgery, because they were all babies. They were within months of each other. In fact, they were within two months of each other in age, the three babies. And then there was Joshua, the two-year-old. Okay. So within 17 months, Nicholas and Christina had passed away.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: And so there was... This illogical part of me that was so afraid that Joshua or Alex was going to be next. Yeah. And it put me in a pretty severe depression. Yeah. And I'm not the kind of person who gets depressed very easily, but I had grown to love those children. Yeah. You know, whenever we had doctor's appointments, if we were all in San Antonio together, we would get together. Yeah. And we just would talk on the telephone with each other. I wrote that book as much for them as I did for me, because when I told them I was afraid of missing something, I was afraid there would be a red flag and I wouldn't know what it was, all three of those moms said the same thing. And when I told them I was having to look up, what's the difference between echo and EKG and all these terms that they were throwing out there? Amy, whose son was Joshua, who was two, she said, Anna, I still don't get it. They still keep throwing all these terms around. And she said, I don't really understand it. And so I wrote that book as much for Amy and Patsy and Sherry as I did for myself, you know, because we were all living with that. And so I got sick, just probably like a common cold. And I think because I was so depressed that we lost those two sweet babies, I couldn't get better. I kept just staying sick and I just found myself crying a lot. And I'm not the kind of person I don't probably can't believe that some <laughs> tears right now, but um, I'm not normally like that. And so I went to my doctor for like the third time in a row because i was still not over the infection. And it was a young doctor because it was a teaching hospital. I said to him, Do you think that this could have something to do with depression? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I've lost two children in my support group. And it's been really, really hard on me. And I said, I'm wondering if that's why I can't seem to get better. And he, I think I just scared the poor doctor today. Oh, no. <laughs> to be honest with you. I know I was older than he was. And I just don't think he had ever been confronted with something like that. He thought about it for a minute and he goes, you know, I think you should take a walk every day. Oh, I think that would really help you. And I just walked out of there and I was so mad. Yeah, (laughs) I was mad. I was thinking, seriously, take a walk every day. That's not going to bring Christina back. That's not going to bring Nicholas back. And so I walked past the parent library that was on that floor. And after I wrote my book, I had become friends with the librarian because I had given them a copy of my book. And so I must have looked, I have no poker face, you know, (laughs) I used to teach the deaf. You can read my expressions, you know, my feelings on my face really easily. So I must have looked pretty awful. And so the librarian said, Anna, what's, what's going on? And I said, I'm just, I've been sick for two months and I just can't seem to get better. And Christina died and Nicholas died. I I just, I can't seem to be happy. You know, I just feel so sad. And so she said, "I, I know who you need to talk to. And she said, I want you to go see a friend of mine. Okay. And she made a quick phone call and then she sent me down to the chapel. And so I walk into where the chaplain is and she was very gracious. And she said, I'm so glad she sent you to me and come sit down here and talk to me. So I sat down, I started telling her what was going on. She nodded, she was very empathetic, very empathetic and seemed to really get it. After a few moments, she said, do you mind if I ask the name of your son's heart defect? I said, yeah, I said, he has something very rare. You've probably never heard of it before. And then I said, hypoplastic left heart syndrome and she nodded and she said, I understand. One of my best friend's son died from that. Oh. And I just was in shock. And she said, I really think it would help you to talk to Jan.
1: Is that her friend?
0: That was her friend. And so I said, wow, do you think she would talk to me? She goes, oh, yeah, I know she would talk to you. And she said, and I think it would help for you to come to my bereavement group. Oh, and I said, but I didn't lose a baby. And she said, Yes, you did. You lost. Oh, yeah.
1: yeah. that was Yeah, wow. And I
0: did. I went to the bereavement group and everybody there I was I was afraid I kind of felt like a fraud
1: because yeah. my
0: son was alive. You know, talk about survivor's guilt, right? <sighs> yeah, we sat in a circle and we all had to go around the room and, and say what our name was and why we were there. And they just took me under their wings. I mean, all of them were so sweet. And they were all there for different reasons. It wasn't just parents. Some people had lost their spouse, some people had lost a spouse of 50 or more years. I mean, there were people of all ages that were there, but they were all so loving and understanding. After I had been going to that session, you know, that bereavement group for a while, I started feeling so much Better. I mean, I was still really sad, but after talking to Jan, too, Jan made a huge difference in my life because her son Adam died and she was still alive. And part of me really felt like if Alex died, that I would die of a broken heart. Yeah. And I didn't want to leave Joey without a mother and a brother.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: My husband without his son and a mother, but I really felt like my, my heart was breaking. It took me a while to get over that. And it still comes back just the other day. We lost a 27 year old HLHS heart warrior. I think I've known of that family since 20 years ago, there was a, a heart group called PD heart. And I remember that name. And so many of us that were part of that early support group had children with HLHS. I lit a candle and put it in my front window, and I said a prayer for him, and I said a prayer for the family, and it still hurts, Mary.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. Every time I read something like that on Facebook, when somebody's passed from the CHD community, and it's horrible to hear. Because then it kind of brings it more to reality. Oh, yeah. It is something that can happen. Yeah. It's definitely something that's hard to come to terms with,
0: you know? It is. And so I was really active in the heart community after I wrote my first book. And then I put two more books together, but I was a homeschool mom. And so for about 10 years, I was so busy as a homeschool mom and a robotics coach and a stroke and turn judge for the (laughs) swim team and a theater mom. I really just kind of put that more on the back burner. I mean, I still kept in touch with some of my friends and I still kept in touch via email. It was kind of nice to have that 10 years where Alex was doing really well. I won't say that I didn't think about it, but it didn't consume me.
1: Yeah. Which is nice to have a little bit of a break. So then when he got into his teenage years, he had an additional surgery, right? Yes. But he's been doing well since then. And now he's actually working. He is. He's
0: working full time as a pharmacy tech at the hospital where he was born.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: Yes. And I'm really proud of him that he's doing that because he walks more than I do in a day, Mary.
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: Yeah. He's a pharmacy tech and he delivers medications throughout the entire hospital. Our hospital is a really big hospital. So he shows me his app sometimes and he often has 10,000 steps or more just from work.
1: That is that's amazing.
0: amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because when I walk 10,000 steps, I want a nap.
1: And yeah. my son
0: comes home and he goes, yeah, that's goes and does that other stuff. Yeah. Oh my
1: gosh. Yeah. I would also have to take a nap. I want to quickly talk about your new book that you are working on. The okay, It's The Heart of a Heart Warrior. Or, or yes,
0: that's what it is. And that's not the, the term that my son wants at all. <laughs> yes it's called the heart of a heart warrior and it's the third in the series so my very first book was hypoplastic loved heart syndrome a handbook for parents and then the second book that I put together remember I was telling you about how Jan really helped me yeah I kept meeting more and more people in the heart world who shared their beautiful stories with me and then when I would meet somebody new and they would say oh my gosh I'm so worried we have a hospitalization coming up or I'm so worried I don't know if my kid's going to make it to summer camp. I'm afraid to let them go to summer camp or whatever. They would share their concerns with me. And I would say, oh my gosh, well, I have a friend, Jenny, and she went to summer camp and it was just a great experience for her. And I would talk about that. And then when they would say, oh, I'm worried about the hospitalization. Oh, my friend, Holly, she has a great system for what to do when her kid was in the hospital. When Sadie was in the hospital, she just, she shared some wonderful tips with me. I found that I kept saying these same stories over and over again with these amazing women that I had met over time. And I had gone out to dinner with a friend of mine named Jane, whose son Marcus has hypo plastic right heart syndrome and i was telling jane how i keep telling these stories all the time and she said yeah it's time for you to write a book (laughs) and i said what do you mean and she said yeah it's time for you to write a book so we can all tell our stories in your book and i said oh my gosh that's a great idea and i said well how many stories do you think i should have and she goes well i don't know how many have you got I said, "Well," and I started recounting, you know, in my brain. I said, "I think I've got at least a dozen."
1: Whoa.
0: Said, "Well, I'm going to go out to PD Hart and I'm going to let everybody know that you're doing this, and then we'll see what happens." A hundred
1: women wrote to me. Oh. My gosh, that's amazing. A
0: hundred women wrote to me and said, I want to take part in this book. Now, which is typical, What's what I'm going to tell you next is very typical. So a hundred <laughs> women initially reached out to me and said, yes, I have a story I want to tell. Yeah. I got about 65 essays, which is a pretty hard. Yeah. And of those 65, I think I chose 62. And that that's became so the heart of a mother. Yes, that became the heart of a mother. And those were all the stories, Mary, that I wanted somebody to give to me when Alex was diagnosed.
1: Oh, that's moves. beautiful.
0: So of course, while, even while I'm working on the heart of a mother, in the back of my brain, I'm thinking, I wonder what Frank would say. I wonder what Ted would say. I wonder what some of these other men would say if they were writing book. And so early on, I, I conceptualized the heart of a father. But like I said, I took about 10 years off. And so I, I kind of reached out to people, but I wasn't really aggressive and working on the heart of a father because I was so busy as a homeschool mom. 10 years later, I published the heart of a father and the dad's stories are very different than the mom's wow. stories. Working with the men was a really cool experience because I got to see the world through a man's vision and through a man's insight. That was an amazing experience for two reasons. One, a lot of the men who wrote were the husbands of the wives. So I got to see those kids 10 years later.
1: And that was awesome.
0: So that was really cool. But then the second thing is I kept putting that book on the back burner and I told my dad about it. And said, You know, I really, I know I need to do this, but I just don't seem to find the time. And daddy said, I'm going to be your co editor. <laughs> I'm going to help you. We're going to put a Gantt chart together. We're going to get these men to edit their essays. Cause that was one of the problems with the men. When I told them, Okay, this is a great first draft. Now I want you to rewrite it. And I want you to, you know, tell me more about this and tell me more about that. Most of the men were like, Nope. You wanted me to write, I'm (laughs) done. So getting them to rewrite, that was like torture. So with my dad's help, they were more responsive to my dad than they were to me. And I think because he was a little bit older and he was a man and and they could relate to him better than they could relate to me. So we did it. And I was really, really proud of my dad. My dad and my husband worked on this and we went on book tours together and it was really cool. So now here I am 10 years later. So it's this Uh, magical 10 number ready to put together the heart of a heart warrior. And this is your story, Mary. This is Alex's story. This is Jenny's story and Victoria's story. And so the really cool thing is that a number of the heart warriors who are ready for the book, their mother wrote for the heart of a mother. Their dad wrote for the heart of a father. But I have a lot of other people too who are brand new, you know, who nobody else has ridden from their family. And so it's fun to know their stories as well. And I hope you're going to be sharing a story I, too. That'll be really special. And I don't know your parents yet. I hope I do get to meet your parents. Your parents have to come on my podcast.
1: Yes. yeah. <laughs> I think you and my mom would get along really well.
0: I think so too. I, we certainly have walked those corridors together. We know what it's like to hand our babies over to a surgeon. And Oh, yeah. That, that makes you form a special bond. You don't even have to say anything. You can just yeah. you know, grab a hold of each other's hands and you just know.
1: Yeah. And even the things that you're saying, because I recently talked to her about the same time period and it's very similar. It's, it's interesting just to get different perspectives, but- I just can't imagine (laughs) (laughs) what you guys went through and then doing it now, having cell phones. It's still hard, Mary.
0: You can at least keep in communication. This last time when Alex had his surgery, I had a cell phone. I could type to everybody you know, I I just I had everybody on my phone, and I could type one message and it went out to my sister's in law, my sister, my parents, everybody got it at the same time, I wasn't having to say the same thing on the phone over and over, which was (laughs) so hard, you know, especially when it wasn't good news, when you hadn't had a good day, and everybody wanted to know, and we didn't even have phones in our rooms. Alex's phone was outside of his room. And I was afraid to leave his side when he wasn't doing well. But I would be Called out into the hallway with you know a phone call from my sister in law and I knew if I didn't take the phone call she would be so worried and yet I was worried and not wanting to leave his side. it it was very very different (laughs) having a cell phone that did make it easier, but it's still it's you're still going through that period of uncertainty and being told bad news and facing things that no parent should have to face and just being. Scared. Okay, right now my kid has nursing care around the clock. When I go home, am I going to be up to the challenge? Am I going to be good enough? Will my child die under my care because I'm just not good enough? That's the scary thing.
1: It is scary. And even when you're an adult and have to take care of yourself, it's weird to then go from having your parents kind of being there every step of the way and talking to the doctors for you and then now you have to suddenly be the one in charge it's weird the whole thing is just it's like a foreign language a little bit
0: so did you find that you didn't want your parents there or did you find that even though you were an adult you still wanted your mom or dad with you
1: yeah i always want them to come with me if they are open to it
0: wish you were my daughter (laughs) because my son turned 18 and he said mom i've got this Oh, really? Yes. And I about had a heart attack, Mary. <laughs> oh, my god! I was the gosh. one who kept all the records. I was the one who, you know, did all the research. And so, yeah, he turned 18. and He was like, okay, mom, I'll, I'll let you know how wow. it goes. And I said, don't you want me to drive you? No, mom, I can drive myself. But don't you want me to be in there with you? Nope, nope, nope. <sighs> he said, mom, you've been training me all my life to do this. I've got it.
1: I mean, that is good. He'll be very prepared, but for you, for you, it's very (laughs) stressful. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What are
0: you going to do, Mary? My son, he's Mr. Independence. Of course, you know, he also had to go to college in New York City, and I live in Central Texas, so he was over a thousand miles away from home, then he had to do an internship in Germany. Yes, the country, Germany, across the ocean. Oh (laughs) my
1: gosh. He was just like, how do I live my life and just, you know, enjoy it? That's awesome though. Good for him.
0: Well, and that's why I had to say yes. When he did it, I had to say, you go, Alex, because who deserved it more than Alex did? And I think that's, you know, that goes right back to what we were saying before about how having this condition... Makes you appreciate every single day. And you don't think, oh, well, that opportunity might come along next year. You know, next year might not be there for me. (laughs) And so if that opportunity is there, I better seize it now. And not that, you know, not that we talk about life and death all the time, because we really don't. We have had some really deep philosophical questions because I was a homeschool mom. So we talked about everything. We talked about religion. We talked about philosophy. We talked about, So many different things that maybe we wouldn't have if they had been in school all day, but since they were here and I was their teacher, I was able to do that. (laughs) I don't think that we dwelled on our mortality, but I do think that we just knew to take advantage of it. And we still do. I mean, we love to travel. All of us love to travel. And so not too long ago, we paid for tickets uh, for the boys to meet us in Hawaii, which was really, really fun. Yes. We got to experience Hawaii. And I guess a year before that we took the boys to Scotland.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: I love Scotland. I, if I was going to have a second home that's not in the United States, it would probably be Scotland, Edinburgh, Edinburgh.
1: Wow. I'll have to go. I've never been.
0: You do. You, you really do. You have to go. It's a college town. It's just jam-packed with history and literature. And there's a huge castle there that's just it's, beautiful. It's just there. No matter where <laughs> you're walking in Edinburgh, you could see it because it's up there on the hill. It's a wow. wonderful place to go. You should wow. go.
1: Yeah. Put
0: it on your to-do list. Yeah. For maybe 2022 because <laughs> When we can travel again. Yeah. I, yeah. This, a, this COVID stuff has been a real thorn in my side as far as travel. I have not had a chance to see my granddaughter since March of last year because of COVID. Yeah. Now she's, she's uh, two years old and I've missed a big chunk uh, like of her life because she's in Florida. I mean, yeah. I'm lucky because we have Snapchat and FaceTime and my son is really good about letting me have pictures. And, you know, I get to talk to her usually about once a week. I get to Aww. talk to her. In fact, it's so funny because she'll pick up the phone and she'll say to Joey, call Oma. <laughs> oh my gosh, that, <laughs> so is that makes so my day. Cute.
1: Whenever,
0: whenever she says, call Oma. Yeah, yeah. And <sighs> she can say Opa. So she can say Oma and Opa and she knows who we are. And she's just precious.
1: Oh my gosh, I love that. Yeah, that is so awesome.
0: It's awesome. Being oh. an Oma is probably one of the greatest joys of my life.
1: You know, everybody says that being a grandparent is like the best. I'm like, okay, well, I'm not trying to hurry up and be there, but thank you. No, no. no <laughs> don't, don't hurry it up because you don't
0: want to. I mean- I would love to have another day with my children when they yeah. were Rowan's age, because they were so sweet and so much fun to be with. And I loved story time and bath time and, you know, taking them outside to look at the stars and pointing out Orion to them and telling them stories. That was kind of a magical time. So don't rush it because yeah. those, those years go by so fast, but- to have the next generation that you can do that with, that's so much fun, Mary. So fun. She's all over my Facebook page. She yes. owns my Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs> She's actually secretly operating it. That's right. <laughs> yeah,
1: That's so funny. Well, do you have a certain website where people can submit for the Heart of a Warrior? And also, since you are a podcaster, where can they find your podcast?
0: Well, thank you for asking, Mary. (laughs) Yes, we are still accepting a few more submissions to the Heart of a Heart Warrior. If you go to babyheartspress.com, then there's a tab there where it has submissions for- Baby Hearts Press, so look at that. And there's some examples, there's a blog there where you can see some of the essays that we've already accepted. We've put it out there so people can understand. We want this book to kind of be like a chicken soup for the soul, for the heart defect community. So the essays are not too long and you can have poetry. We're even gonna have some artwork in there. Mm. I've never done that before, Mm. which I'm really excited about that. So this book's gonna be a little bit different. But yeah, we're still accepting a few more submissions. I'm going to be shutting that down soon. I'll have information on babyheartspress.com that lets you know when the submissions will be closed. And as far as my podcast, my podcast is called Heart to Heart with Anna. Mary knows because she's been on my podcast. (laughs) And and she's amazing. Uh, We had so much fun that we decided we had to keep working together and I got to come on her podcast. So this has been a lot of fun and you can find it at hearttoheartwithanna.com or you can also find me at heartsunitetheglobe.org. That's a nonprofit that pays all my bills and (laughs) I'm on Apple podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, YouTube, you name it. It's, it's out there all over the place.
1: And everybody make sure you check it out because it's so good. And it's like one of the longest running congenital heart defect podcasts out there. So it has a lot of good stuff and you've interviewed amazing people. So
0: I know I've been so unbelievably blessed and we're coming up on episode 300. 300. And Mary told me that I should have Alexander interview me. And because of you, Mary... I got brave
1: enough to ask him and he said, yes, (laughs) I think that's going to be so cool. I think it is going to be a really beautiful episode between the two of you.
0: I think so too. And I'm really, really excited about it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So I've been doing this for going on eight years. When I first started, the word podcast was not even a word. (laughs) (laughs) I was, I was an internet radio host. That's what I called myself. And that's then so several funny. years after I did it, everybody started using the term podcast. And I was like, what's a podcast? <laughs> that like, what I had been doing since 2013.
1: That is so funny. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. I think it just took some time to evolve like that. Yeah. Yeah. And so now there are quite a few podcast for the congenital heart defect community so i'm really really honored that you asked me to be on your program thank you so much mary
1: yeah thank you for being here i had a really good time talking to you as always and i'm sure you'll be on the show again and it would be
0: delightful (laughs) to do that i would love to do that i can't wait to see how your program goes so thank you again
1: i really hope you enjoyed this episode with anna She's an amazing leader in the congenital heart defect world for many years, and she's continued to put out really great informative material, such as her podcasts and books. Make sure to check out her podcast at hearttoheartwithanna.com. She has really great guests that she interviews. I had a really great time talking with her, and I hope to have her back on the show in the future. My name's Mary, welcome to Not A Perfect Heart, this is our community.